Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 4. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Please do keep your Bibles open there to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be spending the next half an hour or so in that passage. Now, most people who have heard of Manchester have heard of it because of one thing, and I'm talking about people all around the world. That one thing is football. And at the moment, the Manchester clubs are number one and number two in the English Premier League. They're doing very well. And at the risk of alienating a section of our congregation, forgive me for mentioning that Man City have won their last 20 games in a row, which is an extraordinary achievement and has put them at the top of the league. Especially as they started the season not doing too well. They, they drew or lost a number of games. One time they had their worst defeat that they've had for years. But somehow they've turned it around and they're doing really well. Now, how have they done it? Some people have pointed to the coach, the uh, genius Spaniard, Pep Guardiola. Another coach, David Moyes, said this week, he's the Heston Blumenthal of football. He just kind of brings different ingredients together. He can innovate. He does things that shouldn't work, but somehow it all happens. He's just this kind of genius coach. But Pep himself says it's all down to the players. It's all down to the players. This week he said, I would tell you if I believed the reason for our success was me. It's not like that. It's the players. The big clubs have incredible success and it's due to the quality of the players, the mentality. It's all down to the players and their mentality. Now, I think the Apostle Paul would be inclined to agree, not about Man City, of course, but about the importance of the players, the people on the pitch and their mentality. Paul would say, if you can work together, if you can stay together, if you can stand firm, then you can win, even against strong opposition. And that's what's going on in our text today. You can imagine Paul as a kind of team coach, only he's not at the game, he's not standing on the sidelines or back in the dressing room at half time, he's actually in prison. So his letter is the coach writing to the team to tell them what they've got to do. And he's sending these instructions to a church in Philippi, which we know of as in northern Greece. It's the first European church. And he absolutely loves this church, and they love him. He says every time he thinks about them, he's full of joy. They've been faithful partners in the gospel business from the very beginning. 
And when he says partner, he means they're, they're really in it. They, they partner financially and emotionally and in every way they try and support him. And they've sent a friend from their church, a guy called Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has come to encourage Paul in prison, to see him and to bring financial aid. And so Paul writes this letter in response. And you've got to realise this isn't just a kind of occasional thing like a postcard. It is authorised scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit through a human writer written with a purpose. And the underlying purpose of Philippians is to strengthen the church which could be discouraged or divided. It could be discouraged or divided because like every church in history there are two sources of threat to the Philippian Christians. Those two sources are external threats, threats out there, and internal threats, threats in here, inside the church. And we need to attend to both of them and we're going to look at them in turn today. I have two headings, let me tell you what they are now. Firstly, stand firm against external opposition. Secondly, stand together against internal division. Stand firm against external opposition and stand together against internal division. Firstly, stand firm against the external opposition. This is the main point of chapter 1 verse 27 to 30, which Matilda just read for us. Whatever happens, says Paul, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit or in, in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now it's worth pointing out that there are no big theological problems at this church in Philippi. Their, their theology, their, their beliefs are really sound. If you compare Philippians with, with the letter to Galatians, which is just a few pages earlier, you'll see that Galatians has got really big theological problems there, but Paul is happy with the theology of the Philippian church. You'll also realise if you compare Philippi with other places that there are no big moral problems. If you compare this with the Corinthian letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you can see that there's no big moral problems in Philippi and that's probably one reason why Paul is full of joy every time he thinks about them. But still, he takes the time to craft this intentional letter, writing from prison, thinking about them and he has a burden for them. What is it? Verse 27, it's that they live worthy of the gospel and that means being unified. That's the burden of the letter. It's a call to unity. And that is incredibly important to a church community because of those threats, the external and the internal threats. Verse 27 begins with the Greek word that means only. Our translation says, whatever happens. Another way of translating it would be to say, this one thing only. Just, it's, it's so important. Listen, you guys. He turns to them and he says, one, one thing only. You know, do you know the expression, you had one job? It's quite a funny meme. Uh, a lot of memes about that on, on social media. If somebody had one job, but they messed it up. Paul, in a way, here is saying, listen, I really have just this one thing to say to you. Uh, you have one job, okay? Are you ready for it? This must be your exclusive and your all-embracing passion. Here it is. 
Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of Jesus Christ. And when we hear that, I think most of us probably think of different things. Some might think, well, living worthy of Jesus Christ is mainly about morality. No, uh, pr private moral behavior, a holy lifestyle. Some might think of living worthy of Jesus as in, in terms of their service, at serving Jesus, being, being, uh, doing good deeds for him. Others might think in terms of social justice, serving the needs of the poor and the needy. Others think of a life worthy of Jesus is, is bearing witness, being like we just heard from the students, evangelism and sharing the good news. Now, surely all those things are included when Paul talks about a life that's worthy of the gospel. They all relate to our public and private behaviour as believers. But notice that when Paul writes this, the one thing he highlights is not actually any of those things. He highlights unity. Here it is again in verse 28. Uh, sorry, verse 27. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So Grace Church, friends, being unified, standing as one, is central to the worthy life. It's not peripheral. Unity is not an optional extra. It's not a nice to have after we've pursued our private relationship with Jesus. Unity is like being a player on a team. It's not all about you as an individual, however gifted you are. One amazing football player does not win victories. It's the whole team pulling together that wins, wins matches. Now, why is that? Uh, thinking about the church, I, I'm convinced it's because if the church is not unified, then all the other things are undermined. If a church is not standing together as one, it can't give a really strong message to those outside of evangelism. It can't serve effectively together. In fact, the personal holiness of individuals is affected and can even be corrupted by a disunity within a church. So the holiness of a church is completely bound up with its unity. And therefore we must work very hard to maintain our unity as a body of believers. Grace Church, we should never presume upon it. As a church grows, you know, there are more and more people, more and more lines of communication, more and more possibilities of misunderstanding, more and more points of view, and we can't please everyone all the time. There's more diversity of cultures, which is one of the beautiful things about our church is that many different cultures that are within our church, but that means there's much more danger of giving offence without realising it and possibility of misunderstanding. And we have to ask here, whose job is it to seek and maintain unity? And Paul points out that it's all of our job. He says to them all, I know that you will stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And unity promises two great prizes. The first of them is described in verse 28. It, verse 28 says, if you're unified, you won't be frightened because unity, standing together, gives us the strength to stand against hostile opposition. Not frightened in any way, he says. See the power that a unified church can have, standing shoulder to shoulder. Unity gives the individuals courage because they know they're not alone. Unity also gives conviction. Verse 28 says this, 
This is a sign to them, to the opponents, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. What's he talking about here? He means that when the church is united in their convictions and stands up against hostile opposition, it's a sign to you as a Christian that this stuff is real because you're standing for it and there are others standing for it. That's a sign that you are actually a real Christian and you will be saved because when times of hostility and opposition come, the, the false Christians and the people who are in it for mixed motives sort of melt away. But he says, if you stand firm together, that's a sign to you that you're being saved by God. And it's also a sign that the opponents will be destroyed because they can't stand against God. Now, we don't know exactly what opposition was facing the Philippians. He doesn't go into details, but we do know that it was real and intimidating. In verse 30, he says to them, you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So they have the same struggle that Paul has, and that struggle is opposition to the Christian message, opposition to the gospel. Now, you can read about the, the reception for the Christian message in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. I'd encourage you to read that. It is an exciting, dramatic story. Paul and Silas had been called by God to go there. They went, they traveled, they planned originally to stay several days. They went down to the river to pray. And while they were there, they met a businesswoman, a very influential woman called Lydia. She's a, a dealer in uh, textiles, purple cloth, luxury cloth. And she receives the message, God opens her heart, and she became basically a key person in the church. Uh, I, I suspect that the church was a house church meeting in her home. But they stay in the home and they're building this little church. But Paul and Silas are walking around the city and this slave girl starts following them around, um, shouting at them and abusing them verbally. And she's possessed by an evil spirit. And the thing about this girl is because of this demonic presence with her, she can tell things about the future. She's, she's earning loads of money for her owners. And Paul eventually says, turns around and says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the spirit leaves. But the owners are furious because the source of income has gone. So they physically drag Paul and Silas in front of the authorities. They are stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, severely flogged and then thrown into prison. The jailer puts them in a secure inner cell with their feet in the stocks. So, I mean, they've been absolutely battered. But that, that night, they're still singing hymns to God at midnight. And suddenly there's a violent earthquake, as happens in Greece, and the prison doors bust open. The jailer thinks all the prisoners have escaped. He gets his sword. He's going to kill himself because he's so disgraced. But Paul calms him down and says, don't worry, everyone's still here. And the man then eventually turns to Jesus and becomes a Christian. So you can imagine what this early church was like. You've got Lydia, the, the slave girl probably, and then this jailer. I mean, it's a real mixed bag, as every church is. The next day, the magistrates say they're going to release Paul and Silas. But Paul then reveals his, his hidden trump card. He's actually a Roman citizen. And that's a very big deal. And that means that they're in trouble because they flogged and imprisoned a Roman citizen without fair trial. They're very alarmed. They all go down to the prison and apologize. They try and make it good with him and they uh, politely say, would you mind leaving the city? And so after going to Lydia's house and encouraging that little church, Paul and Silas did. Now, that was the struggle that Paul had at Philippi. That's quite a struggle. And now this little church is facing 
opposition of the same kind. What must they do? Stand firm as one against external opposition. Now, what about us? Those of us who live in the modern West don't face that kind of violent, determined opposition most of the time. But some people in our church might. I know that some people have had threats of violence and of uh, serious consequences when they returned to their home country. There are a lot of places in the world where it's physically or economically dangerous to live for Jesus Christ. Some of you are from those places and some may be going back to live there. So for you, you need this, this text, don't you? This is how to stand firm, is to stand firm as one with a body of Christians. But you know, we all face some kind of opposition. In the modern West, it's much more subtle, but that doesn't mean it's any less real, and we shouldn't underestimate it. I asked for input from some people at our church using WhatsApp, and it was so helpful. Here are a few of the things that they mentioned. Verse 28 says, without being frightened, but we really can be frightened. We fear ridicule and contempt. For example, if you express a Christian point of view in public, you may well be con treated contemptuously and it may even lead to a storm of ridicule and anti-Christian comments. You can be shamed. Then there's intellectual opposition. Some people dismiss any argument that comes from a faith perspective, even if it's well thought through and reasonable. So Christians can be afraid to speak up and let it be known that they're a Christian and share their point of view. We can be silenced. What about the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ? He's not one way to God among many. He's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And that is deeply offensive to most people in the West's way of thinking. They like to think that all religions basically say the same and we're all grabbing one part of an elephant. But if only we saw the whole, we'd realise it's all the same thing. But it actually isn't. There's only one way to God and his name is Jesus Christ. We need to hold our nerve and yet be able to speak graciously so that our conduct doesn't cause offence even when the gospel does. And then there are the moral claims of the Bible. For example, in the contested areas of gender and sexuality. The last few years have seen a rapid escalation of intense pressure to conform to the latest thinking about gender and sexuality. With the traditional view now seen not just as outdated, but dangerous. So again, how we speak and engage with our culture on these matters is something in which there will be hostile opposition. But we have to do so in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Let me show you a, a book. It was written actually 40 years ago. It's by a man called Leslie Newbegin. And Leslie Newbegin had been a bishop in the Church of South India. He'd ministered in India for decades. And then he came back to Britain uh, and in the early 1980s, he, he was ministering in Birmingham. Now, this is fascinating what Newbigin says. Bear in mind, it's only 40 years ago. Uh, 2nd of January 1980, I was duly installed. And since then, I have been struggling 
to fulfill the obligations of this ministry in Birmingham. It is much harder than anything I met in India. There is a cold contempt for the gospel, which is harder to face than opposition. As I visit the Asian homes in the district, most of them Sikhs or Hindus, I find a welcome, which is often denied on the doorstep of the natives. I've been forced to recognise that the most difficult missionary frontier in the contemporary world is the one of which the churches have been so little conscious, and it is the post-Christian culture. So let's not underestimate, there is opposition. Remember uh, that we need to do, uh, face it together, but do so in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that rules out rudeness and aggression and harsh speech or becoming a culture warrior. Christians need to embody the gentleness, graciousness and humility of Jesus, yet stand firm. How can we do it? Only together. We can't do it alone. And this brings us to the second point, which is perhaps even more important than the first, because it is less obvious. It's that we need to stand together against internal division. You see, the greatest threat to the progress of the Christian church is the Christian church. Remember, every church in history has had two sources of opposition, two, two threats, the external and the internal. The, the greatest threat is the internal one. So second point, stand together against internal division. Now, I've, I've uh, waited a long time to use an uh, illustration from my favourite film, Gladiator, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go there today. And my excuse for that is that we are talking about uh, Roman colonies and Philippi. So, you know, there's some justification. Now, in the film Gladiator, General Maximus, played by the Oscar winner Russell Crowe, has been reduced to a slave gladiator. The slaves have been taken to the, the Coloss Colosseum in Rome, and there they're being butchered every day in a series of games to entertain the people. So on this particular occasion, a few slaves are in the middle of the Colosseum and they're waiting nervously for what's going to come out of the gates. They know that it's going to be something horrendous. They don't know what it is. They're supposed to be reenacting the Battle of Carthage and they know that their job is to die. But Maximus has other plans and he gets the slaves to stand together and then he says, have any of you been in the army? And a few of them reply that they have. So he knows the tactics of the Roman army are to stand together. And he says, you can help me. Whatever comes out of these gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? If we stay together, we survive. And this is the main point of chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Would you have a look at it with me again? Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. The point is, if we stay together, we survive. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any com common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Here's the point. If we stay together, 
we will survive. Verse 1 is a very affectionate appeal. Remember how much he loves these guys. He says, my dear friends, remember the benefits of the gospel. Uh, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? You know, as a Christian, you are joined to Jesus forever. You know, your, your life is safe in Christ. He's loved you before the foundations of the world. He will take you to be with him. Are you encouraged by the fact that Jesus, the most important person in the universe, looks at you with love? Do you have encouragement? Of course you have encouragement from being united with Christ. Do you have any comfort from his love? Does the thought that God loves you comfort your heart? Of course it does. Is there any sharing in the Holy Spirit between us? Do we experience the life of a body of believers that's something unique in the world because it's created by the Holy Spirit and it goes across all class divisions and cultural divisions and economic divisions and makes something beautiful and new. We do experience that common sharing in the Spirit. Do we experience tenderness and compassion of other people toward us because God is tender and compassionate toward us? We do. Of course we do. These are all, I suppose, rhetorical questions. So he says, if, you've, if you're experiencing all those great benefits of the gospel, friends, then make my joy complete. He's already joyful about them. But now he asks, make me overflow with gladness. Well, how? The answer is by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, that's a pretty full-on statement about unity, isn't it? Well, I want to make this point. It cannot mean that everyone has to agree on everything all the time. It can't mean that. I just think that's frankly impossible. We can't have a church community where everyone agrees on everything all the time. It's impossible. Even if I think about the closest relationship I have in my life with Melissa, my wife, the person who was, I've shared life with intimately for 22 years, she is simultaneously the person I'm most united with and the person I disagree with the most. And she disagrees with me the most. I'm pretty sure she would say that because that's the nature of a close relationship. You disagree a lot and you work it out. And, you know, working through the disagreements actually creates an incredibly strong and powerful marriage. It's when you don't work through disagreements that the relationship is weakened. And so this kind of unity only happens if we're committed to love one another and to work through our differences together and have that heart and mind to do so. You see, unity isn't uniformity. We're not all the same. We don't all think the same. We don't all have the same ideas. We don't dress the same, look the same. That's the point. It's not uniformity. We're not robots in the Christian church. We're not amalgamated into some brainless group thinking entity. You know, somewhere else in the Bible, Paul compares a church to a body. He says everyone's a different part of the body. You know, you've got your your hands, your fingers and your arms and, you know, the leg bone connected to the thigh bone and all of the ligaments and connecting joints and everything's got a part. You know, so imagine if for the body to work well, it wouldn't work if everybody became an ear or everybody became a leg because all you'd have would be one leg and you'd be hopping mad. That wouldn't be a body. We need the different parts. Unity isn't uniformity but it is a commitment to work things out together in a community of love. And if we don't, 
if we're not prepared to do that, and it can be very hard, then we will find that the greatest challenge to the Christian church is the Christian church. This is vital. In fact, the link that he makes in this passage is an amazing one. Verse 27 to 30, which is all about how you stand firm against opponents, is completely linked to how you are joined together internally by one word, therefore. There it is in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, stand together. So our ability to stand against opposition is entirely linked, integrally linked to our ability to stand against internal dissension. Let me just try and flesh that out with a, with a thought experiment. Just imagine that there are two women in a church, two senior women. They're both Christians. They're both godly women. They've got great character. They're women who serve Jesus wholeheartedly. They love the Lord. These women are, they're like part of the glue that holds the whole church together. You know, people like that. They're key people. But then imagine that these two have a disagreement about something. But instead of settling it and working it through together, they dig in on opposite sides. There is no flexibility. Communication ceases. They won't budge. But they don't go quiet. They go and privately talk to other people about the disagreement and talk about the person who they disagreed with. And so now, before you know it, friends are taking sides, one side or the other, and believing things about that other person that they don't actually know to be true. Bitterness starts to take root. People are listening to slander. And slander is listening to something that reduces another person in your estimation. People are listening to gossip and no one is brave enough to challenge it. So the community is divided. Some people say they want to leave. It's no good here anymore. The church becomes focused on itself and its own problems. It becomes weakened. It becomes inward looking. It's not an attractive community anymore. It's just like the world. It's a hotbed of rivalry and factions. Now, you may think I just made up that thought experiment, but the fact is something exactly like that was happening at Philippi. That's where I got the example from. Chapter 4, Paul actually names the two women, which is pretty bold. He says, for, chapter 4, verse 2, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. In other words, I'm begging you, says Paul, to work it out, to agree, because without that, the whole thing will be divided. So something like that was going on at Philippi, and here are the qualities that we need as a church if we're going to be stand a chance of staying together. Verse 3, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So we can all have ambitions, but sometimes we're selfish about them, about what we want for ourselves, and that can be a terrible wound in the side of a church. Or we can be conceited and proud and full of what we deserve and what we should have and how other people should treat us and so on. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value other people above yourselves. Now, you know this is completely countercultural. Nobody in the world thinks that everyone else is more important than them. But that's exactly what he says Christians should do. 
not looking to your own interests, but always looking to the interests of others. And if we do that, then we will stand together against division. How can we live like this? It's a challenge, isn't it? It obviously doesn't come naturally. One of the greatest works on Christian community was written by a German theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer stood against the Nazi regime in the Second World War. He actually went back to Germany when he had a chance to uh, stay in, in America. But he knew he had to go back for his own people. And he made a stand against Hitler. He was imprisoned and he was executed by the state a few days before the end of the Second World War. But Bonhoeffer wrote one of the great works on the Christian community, and it's called Life Together. And let me share some principles from that as we close this sermon. Bonhoeffer supplies seven principles for eradicating selfish ambition from Christian communities. Here's what he says. Christians should hold their tongue and refuse to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother or sister. So first of all, we've got to learn to hold our tongue and not refuse to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother or sister. Secondly, they should cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by his grace. Paul himself said, I'm the chief of sinners. We need to be able to say that about ourselves. You know your own heart. You know how wretched a sinner you are. You only live by God's grace. So cultivate the humility that comes from that. Be preoccupied with your own sins, not with those of other people. Thirdly, listen. Bonhoeffer says they need to listen long and patiently so that they will understand their fellow Christians' need. Fourthly, time. Refuse to consider your time so valuable that you can't be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. Fifthly, to bear the burdens of brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving whatever they've done wrong. Sixthly, to speak God's word to one another when they need to hear it. And seventhly, to understand that in the church, authority is characterised by service and doesn't call attention to the person who performs the service. Anyone who wants to follow me, Jesus said, uh, must take up their cross day by day and follow me. And the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the servants of all. And that's where we get the power, the inspiration, the strength to live like this is through looking at Jesus and drawing our life and our energy and our spirit from him. The one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing for our sakes. The servant of all, the servant king. And so if we have our hearts and minds set on Jesus, we will have the power together, won't we? To stand firm against external opposition and to stand together 
against internal divisions. May God give us strength to do that. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you today with a spirit of repentance. We can all think of times where we've not stood together, where we failed in some of those aspects of community that you've called us to, and where we've not lived worthily of the gospel. Have mercy on us, we pray. And Father, we ask for a special grace at this time and season where we're not together and so many little things can creep in to divide us. Protect us from that, please. May you guard us from the enemy. Deliver us from evil. And please keep us as a church focused on living worthy of the gospel and of the great beautiful message of Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.